Amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. As you grab a seat, let's pray and ask God to continue to speak and move by his spirit in our lives. Father, you are a way maker. You make a way. God, I don't know what, what barriers, what challenges, what frustrations that everyone's bringing today, but God, we confess you are bigger than any of them and you will make a way. And so God, as we turn to your word, God, would you speak in power? Would you move by your spirit that we would have eyes open to see all that you're doing in Christ? God, teach us, move. You have your way in our lives today. We pray in Christ's name, amen, amen. Hey, it's so good to see some new faces out there today. Thank you for joining us in worship. We're, we're picking up today, continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 23 all the way through chapter 3, verse 12. And last week, Tanner, as he was preaching through Mark, introduced us to some of the controversies that Jesus faced. What did we see last week? The Pharisees were upset because Jesus was a friend. He was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And then they're asking, hey, Jesus, why is it that your disciples don't fast? Well, today we're going to be introduced to another controversy, the Sabbath. Now, most of us probably have some vague sense that the Sabbath is pretty important, right? I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments. And so we're like, hey, it's probably a pretty significant thing that I should pay attention to, but we probably struggle with how to understand and apply the Sabbath to our lives today. Um, and, and that was the case for me. I grew up in a Christian home. Um, my, uh, my dad was a pastor, and uh, man, I, we, were, we were always in church. Sundays for us were a Christian Sabbath. We went to church on Sunday mornings. We went to church on Sunday evenings. And then we didn't go to the movies. We didn't go shopping. I didn't play sports on Sundays. That was the practice. And, and implicitly, it was because, man, Sundays were the Christian Sabbath. It was a day for worship and a day for rest. Well, as I continue to grow in my faith, and particularly in seminary, I spent a, a bunch of time wrestling with my experience growing up and, and what it looked like our, our practice and belief regarding the Sabbath. And, and as I was reading the scriptures and trying to understand what do the scriptures actually teach about the Sabbath, this interested me so much that I ended up writing an entire dissertation on the Sabbath. Um, it's called The Drama of the Sabbath, a biblical and theological analysis of the Sabbath. So in one sense, this sermon today is gonna be an easy one because I've spent so much time thinking about it, and yet it's gonna be one of the hardest sermons that I've probably ever preached because I can't give you my whole dissertation today. There's so much I wanna say that I can't say. So maybe if you wanna learn more, we'll grab a cup of coffee at some point and continue to dig in. But just know that. I'm not going to be able to unpack everything, but I do want to unpack what I believe will help us move forward in understanding the Sabbath. But hey, let's go ahead and jump in to the text today. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. The Word of God says this, One Sabbath, 
he, speaking of Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Continues. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, speaking of the Pharisees here, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, hey, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. As we look back at these Sabbath controversies, I want you to zero in on the questions that frame the discussion here. Look back at verse 24 of chapter 2. Um, it says, the Pharisees were saying, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? In other words, it's focused on what are the commands, what are the rules of the Sabbath, and are they following these rules? The other question is found in the next uh, narrative here in chapter three, and, and it's where Jesus asks, um, because he knows that's what they're thinking. In verse four, he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Again, focused on what is appropriate, what are the rules, what can we do on the Sabbath? And these are probably two of the questions most of us probably approach the Sabbath with. In other words, like, what are the commands? What are the rules? And then how do I go and apply the rules? And, and those aren't bad questions, but I actually want us to start with a different question. And here's the question I want us to start with today. What is the story of the Sabbath? What is the story 
of the Sabbath. Why do I want to start there? Here's why. These rules or commands fit in to the story of God's redemption. The Bible isn't simply a rule book. We're not just flipping through this to kind of pull out some rules that we can go and apply. The Bible is a story of God's redemption for his people. And we've gotta understand the rules, the laws, the commands in light of what God is doing. And in particular, how these rules and commands relate to Jesus, who is the, the climax of all of scripture. Once we understand the story, then we'll be able to apply the Sabbath to our lives today. So here's what I'm gonna do. Before we unpack these passages, I'm gonna give us a quick flyby of the story. I wanna go all the way back to the beginning to help set the context for us to really understand what's happening here when we come to Jesus and these Sabbath controversies. And I'm gonna do this kind of like watching a play. I'm gonna talk about the six acts of the drama, the story of the Sabbath. So let's go to act one. In act one, this is in creation. And again, I'm gonna be very brief here. I wish I could preach an entire sermon on each of these at some point, you guys hang on for that. But for today, I'm just briefly summarizing these acts. We go back to the very beginning and God creates the world in six days. On the seventh day, it says God rested from his work of creation. Now what's going on there? Here's what's going on. God inaugurated the Sabbath on the seventh day by resting from his work, not because he was exhausted. God never gets exhausted, but it's so that he can sit and he can reign and he can rule over his good creation. What he rested from was the work of creation. It's so that creation could be what it was intended to be. But if you go and look at at, at day seven, humans are found nowhere. It doesn't even mention us. So so what, the humans were created on day six. What do we do on day seven? By default, you go from day six into day seven, and here's the point. You were created to enter into and enjoy the rest of God. Now, here's another cool point. When you go look at day seven, all the other days when God creates, he says there was morning, there was evening, the first day, the second day, the third day, the sixth day. When you come to the seventh day, there's no formula. It doesn't say, and there was morning and there was evening the seventh day. Why? Well, I believe this. I believe what the authors were intending to communicate is that the seventh day wasn't supposed to end. The seventh day pictured God's unending rest and you enter into that. And so Adam and Eve entered into that rest and they were to enjoy that rest for all of eternity. But as we continue reading the story, we see that's not where it ends. We see pretty soon in act two that the Sabbath is lost. If by default we enter into day seven and the rest of God, by rebellion, Adam and Eve, they rebel against God and and against his commands and they are kicked out of the garden. Think about this, the garden is the place where you enjoy the presence and rest of God. They are exiled out of the garden, and now they face the curse, the curse of exhaustion, of frustrated work, of sickness, and death. Yet even in Act 2, Genesis 3 here, God gives us a glimmer of hope. 
In the midst of all of this brokenness and rebellion, God says, I'm going to send an offspring of the woman. Go to Genesis 3.15. You can look at it later. And this offspring is going to crush the works of the serpent. In other words, God is committed to reversing the effects of the fall through an individual. Look, you don't miss that. That is the point of the scriptures. The rest of what we read in the Bible is about God bringing about salvation to get us back into the garden where we can enjoy his Sabbath rest. So we move on. Act three. In Act three, this is the rest of the Old Testament. So I'm very brief here. In Act three, you see God chooses Israel and the Sabbath is commanded and promised. The Sabbath is commanded and promised. In Act 3, you find the Sabbath, one of the Ten Commandments. But, but not just the Sabbath, you find the Sabbath, the festivals, which were Sabbath-like. And you find the Sabbath year, the seventh year. And you find the, the year of Jubilee after seven sevens in, in 49, in, in that 50th year. All of these, um, it's like God is creating rhythms weekly annually, every seven years, in the year of Jubilee to remind them about this Sabbath rest. We need to pause here. Don't lose sight. The purpose of the Sabbath commands serve a much larger picture than what you're doing on Saturday or Sunday. They are about God's plan of redemption. As we look in here, I'm gonna just highlight one verse or two verses from Exodus 31. So in Exodus 20, one of the Ten Commandments, God gives the Sabbath, but later on in Exodus 31, um, God unpacks it a little more. And he says this, therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign. You see, you see that? It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. The Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic covenant. When God gave covenants, there was a sign that he, the, the, the Sabbath was that sign of the Mosaic covenant. And, and you may ask, why, is God, why did God command the Sabbath? Like, what's the purpose of this sign? I'm gonna argue that it was to look back and then to look forward. Because the reason that he gets here in this verse is he says, for the Lord made the heaven and earth um, in six days and on the seventh day he rested. He's going back to creation when he gives it. In other words, he's reminding the Israelites, look at God, you were made to enjoy the seventh day rest of God, but that has been lost. So the Sabbath was a reminder, this is what you were made for, but implicitly it pointed forward because when they look back at creation, they're reminded, oh yeah, that's what I was made for, but that's not what we're experiencing. We're experiencing pain, brokenness, sin, sickness, and death. We've been exiled out of the garden. So it was a sign pointing forward and it was God's commitment, I'm gonna provide Sabbath rest for you. Again, how is he gonna do that? It's gonna be through that offspring. We can't miss this point, that the Sabbath is a sign. And, and let me give you an illustration to help you with this. Um, this past week was vacation week, winter vacation for our kids. And uh, so what we did, we, we slid away for a few days and we love skiing and snowboarding. Um, I can do both. This past week, I was, I was boarding. 
Um, and you can see a picture here of, of my daughter, Callan and Emmett. Uh, here's a proud dad moment. Many of you guys know we adopted Callan roughly two years ago, um, and she has some cognitive um, challenges, um, but has made a ton of progress. When we adopted her, um, she even struggled to, to walk down the stairs the right way. So the fact that you can look at her on skis right now, it's amazing the progress that she has made. Um, but I spent some time with Callan. This was her third time on the slopes, and, and um, we spent a couple days there this week. Um, and it was a rough start, but by the end of the second day, Callan could go up to the top of one side of the mountain and ski all the way down without falling. You know, you just need to know two things, French fries and pizza. That's all you get. That, that's skiing, French fries and pizza, all right? Pizza is what you slow down with. French fries is how you race. Um, and so like she got it, man, and we were blown away. But on the next to last run um, on, our, on our second day there, um, we're at the top and Callan's like, hey, dad, I'm gonna race you. Hey, I'm gonna race there. I, I'm gonna beat all of you guys down. And she was serious about that. And so we got off and we're all hooked in and heading down and Emmett's down first and she's convinced she's gonna beat Emmett. And you know, Emmett is very competitive. Um, and so we're heading down a green circle. A green circle is one of the easiest slopes on the mountain. Um, and so Emmett's heading down first and Callan is second and she's going French fries the whole way. You know, like she's racing down. And on this, this green circle, there's a point where you come around a curve, but there's a shortcut on this green circle and it's a black diamond. And the shortcut is through trees spaced about five feet apart with jumps all through it. And so Emmett is down first and is, he's heading intentionally through the black diamond for the shortcut because obviously he wants to win the race as well. And Callan, completely unaware of the signpost, is following Emmett. And now I'm behind Callan because I had to stay behind her in case she fell to help her up. And I'm going on my board as fast as I could, but I can't catch her. And so when I see what's happening, First of all, I'm like, Callan, left, 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 like hoping she, she wouldn't go to the right, but would go to the left, and that failed. So next I start yelling, pizza, 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 and I'm doing everything I can to get her to stop, and she's not stopping. So then I'm like, fall, fall, fall. And by God's common grace, she fell just in time in front of the sign that's the black diamond, like posted right above her head there. And so I catch up with her and we put her back on the green circle and she goes around. What's my point? <laughs> Don't do french fries all the way down the bottom of the mountain. No, that's not my point. The point is she, mi she missed the sign. The sign was to, to warn her or let her know what's ahead. And, and she's just heading right into the trees, oblivious to the sign. And, and when we read the Sabbath, just focused on the rules, but miss the sign, we're in such a similar danger. So that's, that's my point. Don't miss that the Sabbath is pointing to God's larger picture of how he is going to bring about Sabbath rest through an individual. So we come to the interlude. I've thrown the interlude here is because after the Old Testament, there's about 400 silent years from Malachi to John the Baptist where we don't have any scripture. What happened in the, those silent years in the interlude here is that the Sabbath was revered. This was during the 
second temple period. And, and you, can, you can imagine why it was revealed. If I could have unpacked more about the Old Testament, one of the main reasons ex, the, the Israel was sent into exile is because they didn't keep the Sabbath. Go read Leviticus. You can read in Leviticus uh, 26. Go read 2 Chronicles 36. It's unpacking this. Because the Sabbath was the sign of Mosaic covenant, they broke the covenant. They didn't keep the Sabbath. And so they were exiled and they received the curses of the covenant. And so Israel now knows that they were exiled. One one of the reasons because because of not keeping the Sabbath. And so they're committed. That's not happening again. Such so that, that they create 39 rules. Go read the Mishnah. 39 rules that spell out how to keep the Sabbath so they don't break it. Now we're getting closer to the time of Jesus. The Sabbath during this time became one of the key central characteristics of Judaism. Now Jesus steps onto the scene. You can see the problem. The problem was they were focused on how to keep the Sabbath and weren't thinking about why the Sabbath was given in the first place. So we come to Mark 2, after these 400 silent years, and you can imagine why the Pharisees are so critical of Jesus and the Sabbath. Jesus, do you not know we were exiled because we didn't keep the Sabbath? And just as a side note, these 39 ways to keep the Sabbath, most of them, if not all of them, were above and beyond anything Scripture had commanded, okay? In fact, in the Mishnah, it says, the rules were many regarding the Sabbath, but Scripture was scanty. In other words, like, we couldn't find much in Scripture about how to apply it, so we're going to create all of these rules. But we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus has taken the Sabbath in a new way. Last week, Tanner introduced us to this. Jesus is the new cloth. Jesus is the new wine. And for new wine, there needs to be new wineskins. So, so Mark is already preparing us when we enter into the Sabbath controversy that we should be expecting something new regarding Jesus and what he's doing. So let me ask you this first question. Were the disciples guilty of breaking the Sabbath? That's what they're being accused of. Now, on face value, according to the Old Testament, they don't seem to be guilty. I mean, they're not farmers, so it's not like they're actually trying to work. They're just walking through the grain fields and plucking heads of grain. But according to the Mishnah, they were guilty of at least four things. Reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food on the Sabbath, a quadruple whammy. That's what the Pharisees are are critiquing them of. Not necessarily the scriptures, but of the Mishnah. And so notice how Jesus responds. Jesus in verse 24, uh, verse 25, says to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need? Now I'm just gonna pause here for a second. On the surface, Jesus' response can be pretty confusing. I mean, just skim over it real quick. Do you see anything in Jesus' response about the Sabbath? The question is, are they breaking the Sabbath? And Jesus, look, surely you've read the Old Testament about David. And the example there is not anything to do with the Sabbath. So what's going on here? Here, Here's what's going on. Jesus is not attempting to defend the disciples' actions. He's up to something so much greater. So let's walk through this and try to figure out what Jesus is about. First of all, he rebukes them. You're the Pharisees. Have you not read? Surely you've read. If you've read, you would have known this. 
And what is he talking about? He's talking about the example of David in 1 Samuel 21. Just make that a side note. We don't have time to go and pack all of that, but you can go read 1 Samuel 21 and what David does. And, and Jesus basically summarized it here for. So David, it says, he was in need and he was hungry and he had people with him. He and those who were with him. Notice that parallel. It's similar to like Jesus and his disciples. So David and let's call David's disciples and Jesus and his disciples. So what did they do? It says, verse 26, they entered the house of God in the time of the priest and they ate the bread of the presence. Jesus tells us this. You can go read about this in Leviticus 24. Only the priest could eat the bread of the presence. But what does David do? It says, and they ate the bread of the presence, which isn't lawful for any but the priest to eat. And David ate it and he gave it to those who were with him. Now, what's his point? I believe there's two significant points here. The first one is this. David and those with him ate the bread and broke the law. Yet the scriptures never condemn David for this. And so what he's saying is, hey, you know the scriptures, you know David broke the law and the scriptures didn't condemn him. Why are you condemning me? And, and what seems to be is that looking at David's example, Jesus is concluding is that there were situations, let's say in times of need, where the law could have been waived or transcended. David, David obviously did that. But let me ask you this. How does David's example even apply to Jesus? Like, how does it relate to this question of the Sabbath? Here's how. Because Jesus is intending to draw a greater comparison. Jesus is implying the situation that he and the disciples face right now is similar to the situation that David and those with him faced. And here's the point. D.A. Carson, Carson, man, highlights this clearly when he says, this comparison only works if Jesus is at least as special as David. Did you hear that? This argument only is Jesus is doing an argument of the lesser to the greater. And basically, here's what he's saying. If David, the great king, had the authority to reinterpret the law, then Jesus, the greater king, has the same authority to a higher degree. You guys see that? So Jesus' primary concern isn't to demonstrate that the disciples didn't violate the law. Rather, Jesus is saying something greater than David is here. I wish I could go to Matthew's additional comment in this same section, but this afternoon, go read Matthew 12. And there he's, he talks about something greater than the temple is here. But he's arguing in a similar way. And these next two statements that Jesus gives confirms this. Jesus says in verse 27, he said to them, after giving the example of David, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, the original purpose of the Sabbath commandment was to benefit human beings rather than being an obstacle and a legal end in itself. And then he gives this phrase, so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And this is really Jesus's main answer to their question. Hey, hey, Jesus, man, 
your, your, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus says, look, the issue isn't about the rules of the Sabbath. The issue is me. The Pharisees refused to acknowledge the authority that Jesus had. The answer to their question lies in the person and ministry of Jesus. Just as David's position allowed him to supersede the Sabbath, so now Jesus, as the new David, possesses the authority to supersede the Sabbath. One now needs to pay attention to what God is doing through Jesus. And here's what God's doing. Jesus came and he fulfilled the Sabbath. Jesus is that offspring that was promised in Act 2 where Sabbath was lost, who was bringing us back to get into the garden. Jesus is the fulfiller of the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were faced with a choice and you're faced with a choice. Are you gonna acknowledge and accept the claims of Jesus? The disciples are guiltless because they've acknowledged and are now participating in Jesus' fulfillment of the Sabbath. And what Jesus does here is he sets the trajectory by which the later church would justify its departure from Sabbath observance. Look at this, in Colossians 2. In Colossians 2, Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's, he's highlighting these things in the law, and he's saying, look, those are the shadow. Don't run after the shadow. Go invest in the substance. They were pointing to Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath. The second truth I want you to see here is that Jesus not only fulfilled the Sabbath, Jesus gives Sabbath rest. Chapter three, it picks up and it says, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And, um, and it says, they watched Jesus. This word, they watched Jesus is implying that there was malicious intent here, that, that the Pharisees were looking, they were lying in wait to see if they could catch Jesus, if they could catch him healing on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So what does Jesus do? Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, come here. Jesus, he's gonna, he's gonna reveal what's going on in their hearts. And then he asked this question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Hey, you answer that question yourself. How, how would you answer that? Good? Is it, is it lawful to do good, to do evil, to save life or to kill? The customary Jewish practice of the time was that healing was permitted on the Sabbath if it was necessary. But you know what? Let me ask you this. Was this healing necessary? Could it have waited another day? Yeah, there's no indication here that if this man isn't healed, he's gonna die. So the implication is like, this healing could have waited, but Jesus doesn't wait. He moves forward 
And in fact, Jesus' question here is a, is a slight rebuke of the Pharisees. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, who's doing a better job of honoring the Sabbath? Jesus or the Pharisees? You decide who's doing a better job. That's what he's asking here. And what's their answer? Notice what it says, um, but they were silent, crickets. You couldn't hear, you couldn't hear Pete. And so Jesus looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and heals the man. Now, it's hard to imagine that Jesus broke the Sabbath here. All that he did was speak. Stretch out your hand. He, but they are accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. And here is the irony. The irony of this narrative is that while Jesus seeks to do good through healing, as Robert Gundry notes, the Pharisees have hearts callous enough to harm, to kill even on the Sabbath. Not only would they fail to do good of saving life on the Sabbath, they would actually use the Sabbath to kill Jesus. There's a play on words here. Look at the very last phrase. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Do you see what's happening? The Pharisees were su such hypocritical that they could try to destroy on the Sabbath while Jesus is seeking to do good on the Sabbath. In this next section, verses seven through 12, even plays this out even more. And we see, we could throw all the healings of Jesus in here. Jesus' healings were a picture of giving Sabbath rest because why is all of this sickness here in the first place? It's because Sabbath was lost. You go back to Act 2, if act two doesn't happen, there's no brokenness, there's no sin, there's no fallen world. We're living in the unending day seven, God's Sabbath rest. All sickness, all brokenness is a picture of us living in a fallen world. And so Jesus is healing to show I'm getting us back. I'm the one that's bring healing and restoration from all this brokenness that you face. So in this next section where you read down and it says, many people were crowding around him and he told the Pharisees, I mean, the disciples to go grab a boat because they pressed around him to touch him uh, so that they might be healed. And then it says, in the, the unclean spirits, when they saw him, verse 11, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. You see one of Mark's main points. Go back to Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. One of his main points is to argue and teach us who is Jesus. And so what we're seeing here is that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is fulfilling the Sabbath. Jesus gives Sabbath rest. Jesus is the Son of God. You can be like the Pharisees and harden your heart and reject him, or you can come before him and you can find rest. Ironically, so far in the Gospel of Mark, not one human has confessed Jesus as the Son of God. You have the demons, the unclean spirits saying, you are the Son of God, but we've got to wait a little bit longer in the Gospel of Mark before we see a human confess and acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. Let me try to summarize and bring a few things together for us to think about 
the Sabbath. Jesus healed on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is a day when healing should occur. If the Sabbath is about this day seven where there was no sin or brokenness, well then you should be doing things on the Sabbath that would point to what that day would be like. And it ought to be filled with healings. And so N.T. Wright, who's written a great article on this, he says the only, um, the explanation that can do justice to the betrayal of Jesus in the gospels is this, Jesus was inaugurating the new age to which the entire Sabbath institution had been pointing. He had come to announce and enact the jubilee of jubilees, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, the time when God's purposes and human life would come together at last. That's what was happening on the Sabbath. Which leads us to another question. How does the story of the Sabbath end? We've looked at Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. When we go to Act 5, this is the act that we live in. I would say in Act 5, our duty is not to keep the Sabbath. It is to celebrate the Sabbath. And right now, we live in an already not yet reality. In one sense, we are invited to experience this Sabbath rest through our union with Jesus and through the experience of the Holy Spirit. Like God's given his presence. If you wanna talk about day seven is the place of the presence and rest of God, he has poured his spirit in you. Existentially, experientially, we experience rest through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen? So in one sense, like I've got rest now, but in another sense, it's not yet because God's perfect Sabbath rest has not come in its fullness. Does anybody still get exhausted? Does anyone still get weary? Does anyone still experience the effects of sin and brokenness and sickness and illness? Yes, we still live in a fallen world. And so in another sense, we await the resurrection of our bodies, the return of Jesus, a new heaven and a new earth that will fully usher in God's Sabbath rest. And that's what we see in Acts 6. In Acts 6, which is what we're looking forward to, is where Sabbath is consummated with a new creation. So I wanna wrap up our time by coming back to this question. How then should I apply the Sabbath today? In light of the story of the Sabbath, I would say this, both of these realities, the already and not yet, should lead us to a life of celebration. And here's the main point that I want you to get today. Celebrate in all of life, the provision of Sabbath rest in Jesus. Celebrate in all of life the provision of Sabbath rest in Jesus. I wanna give you four specific ways that you can celebrate in all of life the provision of Sabbath rest in Jesus. The first one is this, enter Sabbath rest. Let me just ask you, Have you responded to the invitation of Jesus? Anyone who was heavy laden or weary, come to me and you will find rest. 
it is an invitation to believe and identify with Jesus. And guess what? This rest that Jesus offers isn't just a rest on a Saturday or a Sunday. And by the way, you can probably tell where I'm going. I don't think Saturday or Sunday is the current Christian Sabbath. Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath and so that all of my life, I don't just think of living in rest or enjoying rest in one day. My whole life is shaped by Sabbath rest. And it's available nonstop, 24-7. You enter into it and you receive the Holy Spirit and then you enjoy that rest. In one sense, your entire Christian life is to be resting in God through Jesus so that your fears, your worries, your burdens are quieted by the peace and power of God. All of your life. You've probably heard this a quote by Augustine who said, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So ponder this with me. Where do you need Jesus most right now to bring peace and rest to your restless heart this week? Where do you need Jesus right now to bring peace and rest to your restless heart this week? It's an invitation to come to him, to enter into his rest. The second way we can celebrate Sabbath rest is by proclaiming Sabbath rest. This is a message the world is hungry to hear. We're all weary. We're broken. We face, you may be here and there may be sickness that you're facing and you don't know the end of the story. It, it's a world that, hey, God is committed to bringing about rest, spiritual rest, physical rest. And so share it. Let me ask you this. Who in your life right now needs to hear this message? Jesus is bringing rest. He brings rest for your soul. Write a name down. Who comes to mind right now? This person needs to hear the rest of Jesus. Third way, display Sabbath rest. I wish I had time to unpack the Old Testament Sabbath commands, but if you would go back and look, you would see that there was a humanitarian need and a concern for social justice. There was the release of slaves. There was the remission of debts. The land was to lie fallow so the poor would have food to eat. There was the cancellation of debts. Like you could go read it all from the Sabbath to the festivals, to the Sabbath year, to the Jubilee of Jubilees. It was a picture that everything that was wrong would be made right. And so I would argue this, Sabbath isn't just about a day of rest or worship. It's a life that's meant to be shared with others. N.T. Wright continues and he says, he suggests that the gospel turns the Sabbath inside out because it gives us back responsibility. And he asks, what are you going to do that brings justice and mercy and offers healing and hope? The church of all people ought to be engaged in deeds of justice and mercy because we're saying this is the, the rest that God brings and I want you to taste it right now. So we display Sabbath rest by engaging in deeds of mercy. How will you live this week in such a way that display Sabbath rest in tangible ways to the broken and needy people around you. One of the reasons that Lee and I are committed to adoption and foster care is because of this. It's a tangible way for us to show the world, I mean, this is what the Sabbath is about. God didn't intend for you to be fatherless. 
And there are many other ways to explore. So go dream, go pray this way. God, how do you want me to display this rest in the world while I'm here? And then finally, persevere in the hope of Sabbath rest. If you were to go read Hebrews 3 and 4, that would be another passage I'd encourage you to read this week. It talks about in one sense we've entered into this rest, but in another sense there's still a rest to come. And he argues to the people, don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's a call to perseverance, to stay focused on Jesus. And later in Hebrews, he says, therefore don't neglect meeting together. This is why we need each other. It's to help us persevere, to not give up hope. We need to constantly stoke the fires of faith and obedience so that our hearts do not become hardened. And we need to do this together, not in isolation. How is the Spirit prompting you to stoke the fires of faith and obedience this week so that your heart doesn't become hardened to God and get deceived by sin? Pedro's gonna lead us in a song. It's called, Oh, Come to the Altar. And as he leads us, I just want to invite you to reflect on the very words that Tanner started the service with. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and weary, and I will give you rest. Father, we celebrate and thank you that in Jesus, we can experience a foretaste through the Holy Spirit of this rest right now. And we have the promise and the commitment. God, I know you're gonna keep your word that one day you're coming back and all the brokenness we face now will be done away with and justice will reign. God, we long for that day. But until then, God, help us to walk in faith. Help us to share this message. Lead us this week. Who needs to hear this word? God, help us show us in in creative ways the responsibility we have to display Sabbath rest. And God, help us to persevere and not give up. God, for the person today who's on the verge of giving up, that you would stoke the fires of faith today, that they would draw near to Jesus within greater hope of what you're gonna do for us. God, we thank you. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Man, feel free to.